It's been a long time since I've done one of these. Um, <laughs> welcome to probably the first Q&A that I've done in years, I think, since I've even started my YouTube channel. A few weeks ago, I posted that I would love to do a Q&A with you guys, except done through email. I like never go live on my channel, but I thought that this would be a good idea to, to gather uh, questions through email that my assistant Ashley gathered. Thank you. You're amazing, Ashley. And she compiled them for me and I'm going to make a video uh, answering your guys's questions that you sent through my ministry email. So hopefully yours made the cut. I do plan on doing more of these in the future. So if your question didn't get answered this time, hopefully it will next time. There are 10 questions that I'm gonna answer, but I am gonna release this in two parts. So I'm gonna answer five of those questions today. And the second part, I will answer the other five. I'm gonna do my best to answer these for you. Hopefully this is helpful. Okay, first question is from Dana. My eight-year-old asks, if God knew that Satan and the other angels would do what they did, why did he create them? Well, golly gee, the first thing that comes to my mind is this kid is a next-generation apologist. I love it. Second, I always asked the same thing about humanity. Like, why did God create us? I always said that if I could ever ask God just one question, one encompassing question, it would be that. Like, why did you create us? So I understand why this would be a point of curiosity for a child. Now, why God chooses to create anything has a lot to do with his attributes, specifically his attribute of love. It's not that he was lonely or needed anything. There was always this uh, unity within the Trinity. In fact, I have a really cool video that talks about this. I think it's cool. Um, that I loved researching and making. It's about the attributes of God. And I argue that it's his attribute of love that shows that God must be a trinity. But anyways, to your question, if God knew that terrible things would happen, why create Satan? Uh, okay, I'm just gonna go where my brain goes with these sorts of things and hopefully it makes sense and it helps. Uh, first, number one, the Bible does not give a specific answer to this, but this is why it's so good to see how scripture describes God. And from what we know about him, we can make some conclusions on this. So this doesn't mean that I have the perfect answer to this, but I am going to do my best to answer biblically and logically. There's actually a more philosophical answer to this that I personally find quite fascinating. And it goes like this, because God is omniscient, which means all knowing, he wasn't surprised by this rebellion. So could God have created a world without Satan? wouldn't a world without Satan and evil be better than a world like ours? So in other words, is our world the best of all possible worlds? There's this really smart dude from the 17th and 18th century that I'm going to put down here because I don't know how to pronounce his name. I, I think that's pronounced Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. He said that God knew out of all the infinite possibilities, this world should be the best of all possible worlds. So God has made this type of world a reality over the other possible worlds. However, there was another really smart guy, a Christian analytic philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. His name is much easier to say, and some of you have already heard of him. He had a different idea. He expounded on Leibniz's point, but he said, that there cannot be a best world. Because the logic went for him that there could just be one more beautiful mountain, right? Or one more morally righteous person that can make the world better. So Plantinga concluded that there is no such thing as a best world. 
And it's also worth noting here that even if God does not create anything, he alone will exist as the greatest good. Therefore, God is purely compelled to create a good world and not a best world. Are you with me so far? Hopefully you are, because I think this is really cool. So this world is a good world since God has offered freedom to man to love him freely. The same freedom was offered to the angels as well, like Satan. He abused this freedom and rebelled against God. So here's the point. A world without freedom is not a good world. C.S. Lewis wrote about this as well in the book Problem of Pain. Basically, God has created a good world in such a way that the goodness of this world could be perverted into evil that's contingent on mankind's rebellion or when creation is distorted. As long as God offers freedom to his creation, we would possess the ability to do good or evil. So the question is not necessarily about Satan's existence. The question should be about the presence of freedom. Okay, so I think that was more of like a brainy response to this question, but if I were answering this for a kid, let me put this away that a kid might understand. If God is all-knowing, this means that he can foresee all possible universes that could exist where real love can exist. And what this reminds me of is the scene in the movie Endgame, where one of the characters is looking through time to see if there's any way that they can save the universe. And what's interesting is that he says, yes, there's only one way. But spoiler alert, it involves the sacrifice of someone they care about, but there's still a way. Now take that to a cosmic level. If God is looking throughout time, right? And being almighty, he knows that real love can only exist with free will. So if he's looking through time and he's trying to create a good world, and he's looking at all the possible worlds that can exist where real love can exist, this is that world because there's freedom. He knows that real love can only exist with free will. So in this light, what I want to do is draw attention to the fact that God creates and what he creates is good. He created all things and he created them free. And those are good. When it goes south is when what God created chooses to rebel against him. In God's providence, which is basically God foreseeing things to come and using it for his purposes, he lets Satan exercise this freedom. Then we can see how this rolls over into humanity. God's plan of salvation was a plan before we existed and we're saved from something. In this way, God overcomes Satan by the incarnation and Jesus being the savior of all mankind. He conquered Satan and death and redeemed mankind. Part of the risk of freedom is that rebellion will be a reality. So that's my not so short answer on that question. And I really hope that it helped. All right, question number two is from Bethany. A frequent one-liner I get told when challenging New Age teachings in the church is, you can judge this Christian teacher or Christian mystic by their fruits, implying that if they are a nice person, then they are producing good fruit in their character or their teachings. So they use their niceness to tell whether or not they're a false teacher or not. How do these several scriptures actually apply in the New Testament when it comes to discerning a false teacher by their fruits? That's a great question. Okay, uh, this is probably going to be another long-winded answer because I looked up the scriptures 
and I'm gonna give some thoughts. Okay, first this comes down to one question for me. What are fruits? Because people seem to think that fruit are good works. If you're doing good works, then this must mean that whatever you're teaching and saying must be true then, right? So by this logic, I can look at anyone of any belief system from atheists to Buddhists to secular humanists to Mormons and think, wow, they are so nice. What they say must be true then. I mean, I think even Satan can be nice. An angel of light looks like light and people are drawn to this light. And this is done by being nice and loving but it's really just darkness. So just look at the new age movement and the cultural climate right now to see how this is abused. Everybody's a walking coexist sticker. They're nice. Basically, the test of what's true is based on the critical analysis and test against reality of the person making the claim. Not simply if they're doing good works or not. I think that's a terrible litmus test. So if you think it out to its logical conclusion, that logic fails miserably. So then the next question is, but then how does this work scripturally. And I'll do my best to break this down. Let's look at the scriptures. And I remember that this first one is in Matthew 7 because Matthew 7 was misused all the time by new age teachers. And it still is. All right. In Matthew 7 verses 15 through 20, it says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In hindsight, I always thought it was interesting that not a lot of New Agers really focused on the next few verses in Matthew 7 about people who claim Lord, Lord to Jesus, but he turns them away because he never knew them. But I digress. <laughs> okay, there's a lot to say here. But first, we need to recognize what fruits of the Spirit are. And the next place that fruit is talked about is in Galatians. We have Galatians 5 verses 19 through 24. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, now this easily can hash out some people who don't fit in the fruits of the spirit category. They're of the flesh, not of the spirit. So people who claim to be believers, but live like the world are clearly producing bad fruit. I say many progressives and people in general fall into this category. I think progressives are a textbook example of false prophets. They call themselves followers of Jesus, but deny him at the same time. They follow a different Jesus and a different gospel. They think they're sheep, but they are actually wolves. And they're not the only ones. A lot of people fit into that category. But I think that people get mostly caught up on the people who seem to be producing good fruit, right? And they call themselves Christians but they're actually maybe they're false teachers or teach questionable theology, right? They don't do any of these fleshly things. 
they seem to exhibit love, joy, peace, and all the other positive aspects of the spirit. I think uh, three things are important here. First, number one, we should pay attention to the manner of living a teacher shows, okay? Do they show righteousness, humility, and faithfulness in the way they live? Many do, but there's more to look at here. We should pay attention to the content of their teaching. Is it true fruit from the word of God? Or is it man-centered, appealing to ears that want to be tickled? Then there's the effect of their teaching. Are people growing in Jesus or are they merely being entertained and eventually falling away? Are people being hurt spiritually by their bad theology? Time is the best tattletale. I think that a lot of people might be too quick to judge on what they would consider good fruit. It's the rule of wait. I think that's part of what Jesus is saying about the tree. You, you got to wait to see sometimes. Also, it says a lot about a person when they're defending a teacher by their acts of kindness rather than comparing their teaching to the Bible. People tend to idolize certain pastors or teachers, especially NAR-associated teachers, and take what they say at face value because they seem to have the red phone to God. They think, well, they're so nice and they love everyone. They do so many good deeds. They are excellent role models. Surely what they say is true. And whenever you claim to be a prophet or apostle of God, there seems to be an element of not questioning their authority. Don't touch thy anointed, right? This is very strange to me because someone could be just a total jerk <laughs> and still say something true. The, the overall point is that we follow truth, not people. So if someone is just a total jerk, right? And they come up to you and they say three times six is 18 and then they kick you in the shin and then leave. You're not gonna think, wow, nothing he said was true. Then think the opposite. And then someone with a coexist sticker on their forehead and a love is love t-shirt walks up to you and says that you are a bright light, hands you a hundred dollar bill and gives you a hug and then says three times six equals potato. Oh, and also men are women. Your job is to follow truth not the person in both of these instances. So both of these scriptures in Matthew and Galatians, right, have to be interpreted in light of other scripture. So watch out for false prophets. Well, what is a false prophet? What does that look like? Right, right? we're gonna have to go in other parts of scripture and have that inform our understanding of what a false prophet is. And the fruit that I see that he's talking about has a lot to do with their teachings, not just the fact that they're nice. I think that there's fruit of the spirit that we have, which kind of flows into Galatians 5. It's talking about what the flesh is versus what the spirit is. And the other thing to notice that's very interesting in Galatians 5 is that he says that against such things, there is no law. Well, what law is he talking about, right? The law of God is written on our hearts. So if you have these fruits of the spirit, you're having the Holy Spirit dwell in you. Romans 8 talks about this. It's impossible to please God without the spirit dwelling inside of you. So hopefully this helped. Hopefully uh, I was able to shed some light on those scriptures to help it make a little bit more sense to you. Question number three is from Joanne. I wonder what your thoughts are on the end times. Are you a post-rapture, pre-rapture, or mid? Well, if you guys haven't noticed, I actually don't talk a lot about eschatology on my channel. In fact, I don't ever recall bringing this up in a video before at all. And the reason why is that, um, to be honest, I'm still kind of hashing this one out. So my answer honestly might be unsatisfactory for some people. 
but after I got out of the new age, I had to reevaluate many of my beliefs. And this was one uh, that I have been watching and learning from the sidelines, trying to really learn uh, before I make a hardcore assessment or decision on. From what I've observed, a lot of people uh, tend to make this into an essential belief. And in the sense that Jesus is going to return, I think that would be true. I am not a preterist or a partial preterist. But if I had to say where I lean, so to speak, at this point, uh, it would be a futurist view of Revelation with a belief, uh, a pre-milled belief of the millennium. I actually still have a lot of things to hash out about the rapture, uh, to be honest. So I would say that I, I'm in a place where I don't know about, about that topic. And honestly, this is why I haven't really covered this topic in depth, because I'm still listening and learning a lot about it. But personally, after considering each viewpoint, along with the other views of Revelation, I find there's a natural category each person fits, depending on what interpretation they take on Revelation as a whole, whether it's a preterist, futurist, historist, or idealist view. Pre-mill will almost always go with a futurist view. There are people who take a mixture of these views, of course, but this is typically what I'm finding. So since I lean futurist, it seems natural that I would ascribe to the pre-mill positions. I admit that I still have many questions and I have a lot to learn still. I do not believe that Jesus has returned. Uh, I believe that full preterists believe that he returned back in 70 AD. I do not hold to that position. I have a lot of friends that are post-mill, post-millennial view. Uh, they're very interesting. It's really interesting to hear their point of view on that. With very few exceptions, no matter what viewpoint one holds, it's important to keep in mind that this is a topic uh, that may be contentious, but not an essential belief of Christianity. I do think that the second coming of Christ is an essential belief, though. And I think that in that aspect, there are differences of interpretation that are allowed to be explored without the fear of ascribing to heretical beliefs. Uh, hopefully that wasn't too much of a disappointing answer, but that's, that's my answer right now. Question number four is from Gabrielle. My question has to do with parenting, actually. Basically, do Christian parents need to prohibit the reading and or watching of things with magic or non-Christian spirituality present. Also, should playtime be monitored to stop children from pretending that they have magic? I would like to know your thoughts on Disney princesses, Percy Jackson, etc. Granted, Disney has a whole host of problems, but I'm thinking specifically of fairy tales and mythology. I'm a C.S. Lewis and Tolkien fan, so I struggle with where to draw the line. Typically, what we do is watch or read as a family and then discuss the concepts taught versus Christianity. Thank you for offering all of us the chance to ask some questions. You're welcome. Hopefully, I'll be able to do more of these soon. Okay, and actually, I love talking about parenting. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna give the best answer I can on this from a uh, biblical, parental, and Christian perspective with a background in the new age. And hopefully uh, this is balanced and biblical. First, I'm gonna come right off and say that I do believe that this is an area of personal conviction on many levels. What might be a strong conviction from one parent may not be for another. And I think there's a reasonable amount of freedom here in, in this aspect where it's not sinful. Second, I don't agree with Christians who think we need to impossibly rid of everything that's been tainted by the world in any way, or that we need to avoid everything that has to do with imaginary magic. Uh, I say that this is not only impossible, but it has a danger of getting really legalistic and puts an impossible yoke on people that not even they can carry, right? Like, can you imagine holding yourself to that standard? 
Like think of it for a second where you, you can't read or watch or have anything to do with uh, something that doesn't have some sort of Christianity present within it. That's just not doable. Scripture does say not to have anything to do with the deeds of darkness, but I do not think that that can be misused as a blanket statement to make Christians paranoid about what they're reading or watching and doing every day. So from the days of the week to the platform that you're watching this on, right? From, from the clothes on our backs to the phone in your hands, you are participating somehow in deeds of darkness. So, so the deeds of darkness that scripture talks about are very different. That being said, I also don't agree with parents who are on the other end of the spectrum, actively involving their kids in witchcraft. Like for example, tarot reading, praying or communicating with other entities, spirit energies, things like that. Uh, Syncretizing beliefs where you take just a little bit of Christianity and all these other beliefs and you mix them together. Um, No, I don't agree with that at all. Third, I would say um, that we would probably use just our good common sense, right? With some exceptions, I actually don't prohibit my girls from a lot of things. I inoculate them. And of course, I'm aware of their ages with this and I come at it from a perspective that they can understand. And I don't know, maybe it's because my my ministry background is in cults, like that's how I got started, but I see the same extreme restrictions that some Christians have that say a Jehovah's Witness would have. So to them, everything outside the watchtower is demonic influenced, including you and me and our kids. They don't allow them to think for themselves and look to the watchtower to dictate their lives and how they think. I see some of these parallels in the church, and I don't think that's really healthy. I think we need to know how to think, to know what to think, and this involves critical thinking. So all that being said, I don't think imagination or play, uh, magic play is bad. I think that this is very natural for kids. My educational background is an early childhood multicultural education. I worked with kids for many years. Uh, It's perfectly natural for kids to pretend and imagine. You literally cannot stop this. Their brain is wired to pretend. I would not say that it's uh, demonic or witchcraft. And and to be clear, I'm not saying that you're implying this, uh, but I'm giving a thoughtful thought that might be helpful for others. Uh, Second, as far as prohibiting all reading and watching of things with magic or non-Christian themes, again, I think this needs to be done tactfully and with balance. Right now... I'm actually doing a deep dive into children's books with LGBTQ themes that are being forced on them. Uh, Personally, I think this is more of a concern than uh, magic themes that are in some kids' books, only because one is simple use of imagination. It can be that and can actually be healthy for many kids, especially those who uh, need uh, a mental and emotional outlet. I choose to have really open cards on the table conversations with my girls, with my kiddos about stuff that might be overboard with magic references though. For me personally, I love the fantasy genre, especially Lord of the Rings, uh, C.S. Lewis, and I'm also an artist, so I love to use my imagination. And one thing you said is that uh, typically what you do is watch or read as a family and then discuss the concepts taught versus Christianity. That is brilliant. Do that. We are raising the next generation and, and too many kids these days didn't have this. They weren't able to have a space to ask questions and get good answers. So basically, we're in the world and participate in many things in the world. We can never escape that. 
So what we do is we contextualize these things instead of uh, syncretize them. I think that that's a great way to help set up our kids to succeed spiritually. So I really hope this was helpful for you and I really hope that I helped answer your question to a degree of satisfaction. Question number five is from Jeffrey. I am a newlywed man to my wife for a year and a half now. Congratulations. Would you have any godly advice for husbands and wives? Love your videos and God bless. Oh man, actually, yeah, like there's there's a lot to say about marriage. Um, this is sort of a general question, not a specific one, but I'll give what I hope is helpful here. I've been married for going on 16 years. Me and my husband are very different. <laughs> I would say that first, you guys are gonna be different people as time goes on. To grow together means that there are gonna be times that you're gonna have to be unselfish, even if it seems unfair. The best advice I can give really, honestly, no matter what it is, to have a clear conscience before God. First Corinthians 13, it seems like we kind of get like a love hangover whenever we go over that scripture, but don't ignore that. Like really, you, you must get your face into scripture, see what it says about loving your bride like Jesus loved the church and do that. And let me tell you, like two people rowing a boat together in sync, it's like she wants to serve next to you. The same thing goes for her in that sense of serving you. There's a servitude that we have with each other. But really, it's that relational connection that you have with God first, that no matter what happens in your marriage, you're not sinning before him. Loving each other by obeying God is a beautiful relational thing. Actively putting God first in your marriage is something you're going to have to do every day. There's a rule every day of waking up with the attitude of how can I make you feel more loved and served today? I think we should ask that same question of our kids as well. What can I do to help you feel more loved? It's a very vulnerable question. I say to do this even if you don't feel like it. I always say we don't know what sinners we are until we get married and have kids. Like, I don't know how prideful, selfish, lazy, judgmental, and impatient I was until I got married and had kids. <laughs> and I think that uh, we think getting married is about us, but really it's about the other person. And this doesn't mean we don't have boundaries in any relationship, uh, but I think it does mean that there's a paradigm shift that happens when we realize that uh, we sometimes can have a Cinderella complex when it comes to marriage. And that the reality is that it's more of a 1 Corinthians 13 than a Romeo and Juliet situation. So this is just a general take and some light advice that I think might be some golden nuggets for some. So hopefully that was helpful. Okay, so that was the first five questions from the Q&A. That was fun. Really hope that uh, helped you out with some answers. I will film part two sometime soon and have that up shortly after this one. So uh, let me know what you guys think uh, in the comments below. Uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think I missed something? Let me know your thoughts.